good morning. I want to encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 11. That's where we are today. And we are going to enjoy looking at God's Word, but it's been a while since we were in chapter 9. So let me just quickly summarize what we learned there. You may remember that Paul spoke of his heartfelt agony over having all of these fellow brothers and sister Israelites who were lost. And he said he would willingly give up his own salvation. That's what he says in chapter 9. If it meant that they could be saved. And he knew, of course, that their salvation did not depend upon his love for them, his passion about the gospel, or his persuasive preaching. Rather, he knew as he discussed in chapter 9, that the salvation of all people ultimately rested on God's elective grace. And perhaps we looked at that chapter together and and you were left a bit frustrated. Maybe you discovered that you could embrace God's sovereignty, but were still left with the frustration that so many people reject the gospel. The very words of life that are precious to you and to me Children, have you ever had your parents speak to you over and over again about a bad habit or behavior, and and finally you understood what they were talking about? You were able to stop the habit, and then you look around and you see a lot of your friends and other children doing the same things that you did. Did you try to tell them to stop doing what you've learned to stop doing? Did you want them to learn the same lesson that you learned, and yet they wouldn't stop, they wouldn't listen? Well, in a way, that's how Paul felt about the Israelites. You might say that he once had a really bad habit, and that was he hated and persecuted, even killed some of the Israelites who believed in Jesus. But God revealed to him the truth, and suddenly Paul understood that this behavior was not only wrong, but stopped doing it, went the opposite direction, and when he tried now to tell others about what he had learned they wouldn't listen. And so we read in the next chapter, and in chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And you can hear his heart over and over again, chapter 9, chapter 10. And then verses 9 and 10, we found that wonderful promise. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So if they would just confess Jesus as Lord, if they would just believe the gospel testimony, his own personal experience, it seems so simple that Jesus had risen from the dead. Paul had seen him. Paul had heard him. God would save them, but they wouldn't do it. Why not? Verse 14 said, How are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And yet, as we recognized and we agreed with Paul that it's not just a matter of saying a prayer, it's not just about saying that we believe in God, it's simply not sufficient. The Israelites said they believed in God. Most of them prayed. So what was the problem? They would not believe that the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, had sent his son Jesus as the Messiah and then raised him from the dead. 
after he gave his life on the cross for our sins. They would not believe that, would not embrace it. And perhaps you remember the conclusion from our last time together, which is also point one for today. True saving faith is connected to belief in the identity and resurrection of Jesus Christ. True saving faith is connected to belief in the identity and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter that you believe that God exists. It doesn't matter that you pray or that you help others or that you read your Bible if you do not also believe that Jesus is Lord and that he rose from the dead. And so Romans 10 taught us that God... God sends people, you and me, to be preachers of the word, to be the beautiful feet that deliver this wonderful news, to preach about Christ, and the Holy Spirit will gift some with faith. And those who possess faith will call upon the Lord, and they will be saved. Well, Paul did not forget that truth. He was ready at all times to preach the word, and yet despite his zeal, despite his passion, despite going from city to city and preaching this good news in synagogue, by rivers, by bridges, outside the city, Israel continued to not believe. And so he writes in verse 18, but I say, have they not heard? Indeed they have. Indeed they have. And that's true of your frustration sometimes too, as you share the gospel. Paul spent eight chapters explaining that salvation is by the gracious mercy of God. And then we heard that first expression of disappointment in chapter 9. We hear it again in chapter 10. And that's a summary of where we are as we come into chapter 11. So if you will, let's stand as we read the first 10 verses of chapter 11. And realize that when Paul says, I ask then, it is in conclusion to all that I've just reminded you of from chapters 9 and 10. I ask then, has God rejected his people? We're going to find that's a very natural question to ask. By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars, and I alone am left. They seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for this continuous stream of thought and argument that Paul has been developing throughout, a defense of the gospel, an understanding of where our salvation comes from, why we have it, what the purpose of it is, how we are to live. And so we thank you for this book, 
We thank you for Paul. We thank you for all the principles that are in it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Like I said, Paul's question there in, chapter, in verse 1 is, is definitely what we would expect. Has God rejected his people? They were set up, as, as Paul said all the way back in chapter 2, set up with all of the blessings could possibly need. Jesus even came from Israel. And then miracles were worked among them, and then the, the feet of those who bring good news came and delivered the good news that Jesus had risen from the dead. Is it that God has rejected his people? Well, we left chapter 9 with a reverence for God's purposes and sovereignty. And if God had desired, he could have been compassionate and merciful to some, many, or even all of Israel. And yet the number of Jewish converts to Christianity remains small. While the harvest from the Gentiles was increasing year after year. And the apostles, they would go to the synagogues first and preach the good news, but time after time they were rejected, only to be received by the Gentiles. And since salvation is the result of, of God's elective grace, it might have appeared that God had stopped choosing the Israelites. Well, what does Paul say in verse 2? No. Well, he says it's stronger than that, doesn't he? He says, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, is what Paul says. So here's the argument by Paul. If God had wholesale rejected Israel for their disobedience and rejecting Christ, how could you explain Paul's conversion? Paul was the worst of those who were rejecting Christ in the Christian church. And now we see Paul the opposite side. Now Paul's every community he's visiting, he's being persecuted by the very ones who had held him up, sent him, right, commissioned him to Damascus to be the representative of Jerusalem to persecute the Christian church. Some even followed him to other cities to stir up trouble against him. And he had to feel sometimes like Elijah or Isaiah, who also stood against a disbelieving and, and corrupt nation. And, and Paul probably asked the same question as those men did. Why isn't there a greater response to my message? Well, what did God tell Elijah? God said, you're not alone. He said, trust me, I've set aside a remnant for myself. And what does Paul say? He says that just like in Elijah's day at the present time, there is a remnant that is chosen by grace. And that leads us to point two. Remember point one was that saving faith is connected to a right belief concerning the identity and resurrection of Jesus. Point two is that God has elected at least a remnant of people in every generation. And they are out there, folks. They're waiting for you to share with them the good news, the gospel. But this is a sobering truth. Not everyone will respond. And in fact, at times, most won't. What is a remnant? A remnant is a small group. How many righteous people were there at the flood? Noah and his family. That was a remnant. How many Israelites that left Egypt entered the promised land? Joshua and Caleb. A remnant. How many disciples were left at the crucifixion after thousands had followed Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount? Twelve. And they ran away. We don't have time today, another story, another time to discuss whether that will always be the pattern in the history of the church. But at least in Paul's day, it was still true. Only a remnant of Israel whom 
God had chosen by his grace would respond. And so you see Paul's conclusion in verse 7, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were what? Hardened. Hardened? Does that surprise you? It's one thing to say that people rebel against God and that God chooses to be merciful to some, but it's quite another thing to say that at the same time God blinds and hardens the ones whom he didn't choose. You thought the message on Romans 9 was tough. Well, consider what Jesus says in Matthew 13. You know this one, many of you. Disciples over and over coming to Jesus saying, I don't get what you're saying. These parables are tough. Nobody else understands them either. We don't understand them. We've been following you for a couple years now. Why won't you just clearly make the point so that everybody understands? And Jesus says this, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom in heaven, but to them it has not been given. It sounds again like an election reference, right? Those aren't just in Paul's letters. They're throughout, even spoken by Christ. And then Jesus says, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. That says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, their eyes, ears, eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Well, God almost sounds vindictive. I harden them so that they won't understand. But we know that our God is a just and holy God. He is not partial and he is not arbitrary. So what's going on there? Well, consider this, friends. If God made salvation dependent upon simply saying a prayer or understanding worldly ethical principles, he would obligate himself to heal even those who were not broken over their sin. Isn't that the message that so many churches are saying today? Just come and be entertained. Come and sacrifice a bit of your Sunday morning, not too much. Come listen to us and a bit of practical advice for your marriage or for your finances or even about how God accepts you just the way you are. You don't have to change. You just need to say a prayer. You just need to be here. We're not going to challenge you too much. And if that were the gospel, wouldn't most want to embrace it? God, however, makes salvation dependent upon a faith that only comes through the operation of the Holy Spirit. That way, he is not obligated to any man or woman. He works out his purposes according to his glory. And that's why Jesus spoke in parables. He clothed the gospel in profound truth and paradox that even the smartest men and women could not understand without the illumination of the Holy Spirit. To them, the gospel appeared to be utter foolishness. And it caused their hearts to grow hard and harder the more they heard it. So when Paul told the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, the incarnate Son of God, guess what? That hardened their hearts. They began to persecute him worse. 
And when he said that Jesus rose from the dead and bore the penalty of God's wrath against sin, and it wasn't about just being a descendant, a physical descendant of Abraham, they tore their clothes and attempted to stone him, even pursuing him from town to town. And the more Paul proclaimed the gospel, the more blinded and hardened and dangerous the unbelieving Israelites became. We should expect the same with our neighbors. As long as you're telling them the truth. As long as you're not being complacent, right, with the good news, you will be not tolerated. The moment you speak the words of life, some will be drawn to the message. As Paul says to the Corinthian church, they will hear the, and smell the aroma of life, and others will revile and hate you. It is, it is a black or white type of situation. People just can't accept a neutrality, a God who demands their obedience, a God who says they are dead in sin. And that is point three, don't water down the gospel. For in making the gospel more acceptable to men and to women, you eliminate the very power of God unto salvation. So here you are, a Roman, reading Paul's letter, and as a Gentile Christian, you've got to feel pretty good about yourself about now because you understand and embrace the gospel. You seem to be one of the remnant that Paul is talking about. That's pretty special. How could Israel be so ignorant? How could they be blind? Those Pharisees? What do you think Paul will say? Look at verse 16. He says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Well, what does that mean? Paul speaks of a root and branches, and he's speaking of an olive tree. Who or what is the olive tree? Well, you'd have to go back to the Old Testament in Jeremiah chapter 11, where Jeremiah speaks to Israel, and it says, the Lord called your name green olive tree, lovely and of good fruit. So Israel was the olive tree. But what is the root? Some would have said Abraham, but the root is described as holy, making the branches both natural and wild holy as well. Who or what is the only thing that can make both Jew and Gentile holy? Well, it have to be that the root is Jesus Christ. He alone is holy. Those who abide in him are made holy as well. Jesus once said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He is the root and the chief cornerstone of true Israel. And look at verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, that has caused a lot of controversy for many people. Dead branches on the tree. Well, children, are you ever sent out by your parents to trim trees or bushes? Do you ever cut off those branches that are dead, very obviously dead, dry wood, brittle wood, has no leaves growing on them, and you gather them together and take them what? To the burn pile, right? Especially if you live out on property. Well, that's what's happening here. Some branches on the olive tree were alive, others were not the dead branches, which were unbelieving Israelites, were cut off 
and thrown into the fire. And so Paul continues, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. And I like that analogy. At our home, we're surrounded by almond trees. But you know what? Those almond trees, they have been grafted onto the roots of peach trees. It's because the peach roots are more hardy. They, they hold on to the ground more firmly. You might say that the almond portion is wild or foreign to the peach portion. Well, when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn in two. It signaled that the Jews and the Gentiles now could equally have access to God. So these Gentiles were wild branches. And Paul continues the metaphor by saying they were grafted in to the olive tree that was Israel. To graft one plant into another is to cut the branch from one tree and insert it into a different tree, just like that almond and peach that I was describing. And can you believe that the branch will actually grow as part of that tree? What made the Gentiles wild olive branches? They were wild in that they were not given the cultural blessings of the law and the covenants and the patriarchs and Christ. Paul, all the way back in chapter 2, made that distinction, right? And he said, wow, look how blessed Israel is. Think of that as the natural olive tree. They were given all of these things. Here's the outside nations, the Gentile nations. They're the wild ones. Paul goes on, but if you Gentiles do boast, remember this, you do not support the root. The root supports you. So for the Gentile Christian who's looking proudly at the ignorant Israelites, Paul reminds them, your salvation is by grace and not by works also. The only thing that you can possibly boast in is in the root, Jesus Christ, who died for you. There's no ground for anti-Semitism in the church. And Paul develops this thought in verse 19. Then you will say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Again, kind of I'm special. Paul says, that's true, they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. And, and that last sentence is another controversial one that has sparked a lot of conversation. And we need to realize what Paul is saying is that the Gentiles as a people were grafted in. They were given access to the gospel just like Israel. And so here we have an olive tree with natural and wild branches. Some are dead and some are living. Natural branches, the Jewish people, the wild branches, the Gentiles, the living branches are believers, the dead branches are unbelievers of both Jew and Gentile. And so being grafted in as Gentiles means that God's general blessings are now upon every nation of people. They weren't just held back to the single nation of Israel, but they are upon all nations and those lands that serve him. But Paul warns, do not take God's favor and blessings for granted 
That was the same warning that had been given to Israel for generations before that. Because they can be removed from you just as easily as they were removed from Israel. Verse 22, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Again, God can at any time remove his favor from any Gentile nation. I'm reminded of Christ's warnings to the churches in Revelation. Over and over again, Paul or Jesus warns those churches, return to your first love, or I will what? I will remove your candlestick. A metaphor that we know to mean that he will remove his blessing and favor. Did that happen? The many churches of Revelation, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Sardis, Laodicea, were all churches founded by Paul in Asia Minor by the year 113, about 50 years after Paul's letter to the Romans, Pliny, the Roman governor of Bithynia, complains to the emperor Trajan that the new faith is affecting Rome's own worship patterns. People are neglecting the ancient gods and the temple revenues have fallen off. And yet, where is the church in Asia Minor today? Its early vitality faded. Its gospel became mere moralism. The invasion of Islam in the Middle Ages almost entirely snuffed it out. Same was true in North Africa. Many of the early church fathers like Tertullian and Cyprian and, and Clement founded great churches, solid churches in Egypt. Augustine, the greatest theologian of the early church, was born in northern Africa and was later bishop of the province of Hippo. But several centuries later, after Christianity had thrived among the African Gentiles, until they, it thrived there until they were conquered by Islam in the 7th century. Even at Rome and Italy, the early church seemed to triumph for a time. In the 4th century, the Emperor Constantine declares Christianity to be the national religion. But prosperity, marriage within the state, leads from a point where Julian the Apostate would say, Jesus, you've won. Right? Jesus, you've won. But by the late Middle Ages, the Roman church is selling salvation through a system of indulgences. Well, what about the church in America? I think Paul's words in Romans 11 are a strong warning to us who might boast of God's favor. It bears repeating what Paul once told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Getting back to Romans 11, Paul tells the Gentiles, verse 23, that just as they were grafted into the olive tree, so God could at any time begin to graft the natural branches back in again. And Paul asks in verse 24, for if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated, that's what made it not wild, cultivated, Again, going back to Romans chapter 2, all of the blessings. How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So God, master gardener, grafting both natural and wild branches into the olive tree of Israel. And that leads us to point four. The same salvation plan, God's gracious electing of his people, 
applies to both Jew and Gentile. Why wouldn't we expect that God would continue to call Israelites to whom he had given the law, the patriarchs and even Christ? He saved Noah, he saved Joshua, Caleb, he saved a remnant during Elijah's time, he saved the apostles, including Paul. Why would we not expect him to continue saving individuals from among the Jewish people? It's borne out by experience. Over the years, Christian missions to Israel have reaped a harvest. Organizations like Jews for Jesus continued to proclaim the gospel to Israel. And Paul's argument in chapters 9 through 11 is it's almost at a close here. God draws to himself a people according to his purposes. He has fulfilled his promises to Abraham by always preserving at least a remnant from among the people of national Israel. Even though God is fulfilling a mighty work among the Gentiles, the Gentiles should not become arrogant to think that God is not also calling many Israelites to himself. And finally, we come to the conclusion in verses 25 and following. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A mysteries. Remember something that was previously unknown or not understood, but has been made clear because it's now revealed in its totality by God. What's that mystery, Paul writes? The mystery is that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, friends, this, this verse has probably caused the most controversy in Romans chapter 11. And there are three possibilities that the phrase, all Israel will be saved, could mean. Either one, it means that God is going to save every Israelite. Or two, Paul is referring to spiritual Israel, which would be the living branches, both natural and wild, of the olive tree. Or three, he is saying that despite the temporary hardening of Israel, that God will still be faithful to save all those whom he has elected from Israel. Which fits the rest of Scripture. Well, the first one we can eliminate immediately. We know there are many Israelites who will not be saved. Paul talks about dead branches being broken off and thrown into the fire. Those are unbelieving Israelites. And additionally, remember how Paul said at the beginning of chapter 9 that he wished his brethren would be saved and that they would get, he would give up his own salvation for their benefit? Why would he say that and worry if every Israelite would be saved in the end? Just is not consistent, doesn't make sense. The second possibility is to see Paul using the term Israel to refer to spiritual Israel. There's a good argument for that from the fact that he uses the term that way in chapter 9 when he speaks of the true children of Abraham, spiritual Israel, as being composed of Jew and Gentile. And while that could be the meaning here, it doesn't quite fit with the fact that every other time Paul uses the term Israel in this specific chapter, he refers to the nation of Israel. I think the best alternative is the third one, that despite temporary hardening of Israel, in the end, every Israelite whom God intends to call will be saved. Don't get me wrong, it would be wonderful if the entire nation 
of Israel or even an entire future generation of Israel would be saved. But think for a moment what that would suggest. It would mean that God has two salvation plans, one being faith in Christ and the other simply being an Israelite. And given that Paul has taken such great pains throughout Romans to say that even the patriarchs were saved by faith in the promise of Christ, and that being physically descended from Abraham does not guarantee salvation, I don't think that can be the correct interpretation. So let me make one more comment along that line. The church does not replace Israel. That's because redemptive history was never about just Israel, but rather about Christ. The church, now made up of Jew and Gentile, continues in itself all the promises found in the Old Testament. Thus, any Old Testament text that talks about future prophecies, promises, and titles, and privileges of Israel are applied to and fulfilled by the church in the New Testament. After all, think about what Israel was. She was a type. She was an example meant to illustrate God's redemptive plan. Consider the exodus of Israel from Egypt. It was not only a historical event in the life of Israel, but it was also a foreshadowing of the cross and salvation. Over and over again in the New Testament, we learn that the Passover, for example, a foreshadowing of Christ as a Passover lamb. We're told that the exodus was meant to illustrate the proclaiming of the gospel to those who were captive to sin. We're told in Hebrews that the failure of the Israelites to enter into the promised land was an example of the failure of those who have heard the gospel to trust in its promises. The the New Testament tells us that Isaac was a type of Christ. Abraham was able to take his son down from the altar, but God did not spare his own son from the cross. 1 Peter says that the flood was was an illustration of future baptism, on and on. Every character, Elijah seen again in John the Baptist. Every event, the redeeming of Hosea's wife, Gomer, from the slave market being a picture of Christ's redemption of his beloved is meant to illustrate for us something about God's redemptive plan and foreshadow the church. Christ is called the second Adam, the Passover lamb, the last prophet, the last king, the last high priest. And in all of these things, Christ is superior. Christ is a prophet, but he's better than every other prophet in that he is the source of revelation and not just a spokesperson delivering the next chapter. Christ is a king, but he isn't just king for a generation. He is the king of the universe, king of kings forever. He's a priest, but he isn't a priest after the order of Levi and Aaron, but a priest after the order of Melchizedek, an everlasting priesthood. And here's the point, and we'll make it the last point. Once Christ came, national Israel fulfilled its purpose. The veil of the temple was divided in two, symbolizing the separation from God was at an end, but also symbolizing the end of the temple. The better sacrifice had been given. And God's salvation was no longer to the Jews alone, but to all the world. God, of course, continues to call men and women from Israel. Paul says that he himself is a proof that God is calling Israelites, but there are not two separate people in God's redemptive plan, national Israel and the church. There has always been one people of God. 
Before Christ, the majority of those people were found in the nation of Israel. After Christ, those people are found made up of both Jew and Gentile, called out from the world to serve him. So the church was in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Just the church has expanded to include all nations today. And please hear this as it's the most direct application to you this morning. Christ alone is the truth, the way, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through him. For God to go all the way back to emphasizing Israel would be to shift his focus off of Christ, who is the very focus and the very purpose for why God called Israel in the first place. God set apart national Israel in order to bring the Messiah. And she was certainly blessed because of it. But it is Christ who is the way, truth, and life. No man, not even an Israelite, can come to the Father except through him. And so I conclude with the final verses of chapter 11. Because they are Paul's Magnificat, if you will, after having thought through these things and kind of concluding to himself, you know, should I be continuing to to be depressed over the, in agony over the fact that despite my zeal, despite my passion and persuasiveness in preaching the gospel, yet God continues to to extend his purpose in calling just a remnant. What is the conclusion here? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him And to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's exactly what Paul says at the end of that. It's as if he's speaking that doxology to himself and he can't help but pause for a moment at the end of all this thought that's developed in 11 chapters and go, amen. God is good. I don't understand all of his purposes, but he will work them out and all of his people will follow him. Let's pray.